Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. My huge lifetime accumulation of Michael Moorcock books are stacked by my side. They're well thumbed from years and years of revisiting his extensive back catalogue. Here on my right is the great library of RPGs and the collection of the Grognard files. And here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Oh yes, this time she's appearing in many guises. Anna D'Antoni from Maniac, Carla the Gypsy, Victoria Regina Fibes, Laura Bellows, Stella Starr. The Eternal Champion is emerging as the Eternal Champion in honour of our special guest, Michael Moorcock. If you followed the Grog Pod, you'll know that our imaginations were shaped by the work of Michael Moorcock. He had such a tremendous influence on our gaming and our reading of fantasy and science fiction He's been a constant reference point over the last eight years of producing this bobbins. So it's with great pleasure that we present this episode, which features a lengthy interview with Mike. Following a brief exchange of emails with Linda, his wife, this interview was arranged, and we don't cover gaming in this discussion, as there are already some interesting podcast interviews out there. Appendix N Book Club podcast did a really good interview, as did Sanctum Socorum. They do a really good job of covering the influence that he's had on gaming. There's a link in the show notes. But Mike is not a gamer. I was more interested in exploring his memoir. His most recent book is The Woods of Arcade the second of the Sanctuary of the White Friars trilogy, which began with The Whispering Swarm. And it's an autobiography of the fictional character Michael Moorcock, who has adventures in many worlds. There's a blend of liminal stories with memoir and high romance in these books, and they exemplify Moorcock as a science fiction writer. We also talk about Letters from Hollywood, a collection of letters which was published in 1986 when he was travelling around California. It features a very entertaining sequence where Mike is a Barton Fink-like character working with the director Erwin Kirshner, fresh from the success of The Empire Strikes Back. We also talk about his other work in film, including The Final Programme and The Ambitions for The Land That Time Forgot. We also cover the origins of Elric and how it came out of the comic book scene at the end of the 50s and early 60s. It was in that world that Mike developed his writing style and he began to explore new definitions of science fiction and fantasy in New Worlds magazine. 
During the interview, you get a sense of his collaborative nature and his personal philosophies on how they've come to be exemplified in the multiverse. In the second section, the resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, sits behind the Games Master screen as we explore some of the games that have got the multiverse at their core. It's another long one, I'm afraid. Fill up a balloon glass with Vimto, sit by the fireside, grab a hobnob and hear some of the tales of new worlds and beyond. I mean, if you're going to have a ramble, let's ramble with the best. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling, to the creator of A Million Spheres, who fostered the new wave of science fiction as a magazine editor at large, a pragmatic anarchist, musician of the deep fix and others, and prolific author. And I feel duty-bound to say, behold the man, Michael Moorcock. Hello, Mike. Hello, Chris. <laughs> it's great to see you. You must be asked to do lots of these. Oh, I don't mind a bit, yeah. Where in the world are you, Mike, these days? Well, at the moment, I'm in Paris. We have a, a, a small apartment in Paris. Uh, we come here every five or six months where I work quite a bit. I mean, I've, I've, there's a there's a game, as you probably know, that, that was coming out here. Um, there's uh, a lot of comics being done of my master so i'm not really people seem to think i'm having a great time you know whining and dining and, and watching watching chorus girls at the folie bourgeois but uh, and, and going up the eiffel tower or whatever people do but basically i'm in a in a small apartment in a in a what's fundamentally a very mixed working class area of paris which i like it reminds me of notting hill that i used to i used to live in before it became obscene <laughs> and uh so uh, yeah i mean that's 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 where i am and what i'm doing and the rest of the time are you resident in america uh, in texas yes yes pretty much solidly in texas now i i, I can't travel that much because uh, i've got bad legs and uh so it becomes a bit of a strain to to do long journeys. It's subject to extreme weather at the moment as well, isn't it, Texas? So they say. It doesn't seem any more extreme than usual to me. I mean, there's mm. a lot of... The press sort of notices things. You know how they are. There's If there's two people trip over a, a, a Union Jack in, in, in Oxford Street, it becomes a major riot. People keep asking us if we're safe and stuff like that. And <laughs> honestly, we, we haven't... We, I mean, I know there have been some riots in the in the um, suburbs and so on, and some demonstrations in in around uh, Republic and Bastille and so on. But to be honest, we haven't seen anything but a few perfectly peaceful uh, demonstrations. You know, people walking through the streets with banners chanting, and then they go away again. So it's the same with Texas. In, in you know, we we keep seeing on on the on the TV. Oh, you know, Texas is burning. You know, this is uh, this is horrible degrees of heat. But they're actually no no hotter than it usually is about this time of year. So I mean, I, I'm not. This is not me denying climate change because I you know I believe that. But they've taken a very poor example in Texas because it, although it has been sort of fairly hot, it hasn't been much hotter. It has been hotter in, in other parts of, of the US, but not, not in Texas, really. Yeah. But we, part of the reason we come away at this time of year is 
is to avoid that heat. <laughs> of course, we don't avoid it very easily because because that heat follows us nowadays. I, I've been enjoying letters from Hollywood. Oh, uh, good. Yeah. 1986 with uh, great illustrations by Michael Foreman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, I'd, I'd like to talk about that a little bit because it's an example of memoir uh, from a particular time of your life. It was quite a turbulent time. Like one of your heroes, you were on self exile, weren't you? Into yes, yeah, the US. Yeah. What drew you there? I think it starts, doesn't it, because uh, a friend's unwell, and that was the initial. Um, yes, um, a friend of mine was uh, was actually he was he was a hard drinker, and he was he was only thirty two, thirty three, and uh, he was dying of cirrhosis. He was also inclined to be a bit of a bullshitter, so I wasn't sure if he was dying of cirrhosis or not. So mm-hmm. um, life was a bit was a bit up and down in in England at the time, and I really wanted to get out of of a, a rather tight circle of people um you know i don't really like being part of a everybody knowing everybody in that in that way so so i um i decided that the best thing i could do was to go and visit him and and see you know see how he was doing um and if he was dying of course to be to be around him um as it turned out he was and he wasn't in very good shape as i you know as i say in the book i I also i stayed at a friend of mine called harlan ellison and harlan Harlan had a had an, an assistant who was a librarian who 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 uh, he'd hired to to sort out his horrible library. And when I say horrible, it was you know thousands of books and uh, comics and you know all, 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 and magazines and so on. And uh, and that was Linda who who um, uh, I was I wasn't in, involved with anybody at the time, or rather I. Got away, so I wouldn't be involved with anybody at the time. To be to be more accurate, and uh, and we 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 fell in love. I mean, it was, a, it was it was neither of us had expected to do that. We both you know both thought that was the end of it. We were never going to fall in love again. The usual stuff. So we did, and um, we we travelled about together for a, for a bit up and down California and Mexico. We we had a had a great time. Eventually, she came to England. Uh, she, I took her from Cal- sunny California to uh, to to the Yorkshire Dales, where she where she she wasn't she she was she was, it was a bit surprising for her, um, and we um, and we settled in Yorkshire for a bit. But but the, the book is mostly about travelling around in 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 in, the, in California, particularly in the Hollywood area. It takes the form of letters to J.G. Ballard, doesn't it? And yeah, it's like yeah. a, an epistle tree travelogue if you like yeah he, i mean uh, jimmy um you know we've been close friends for a long time he was then editing a magazine called ambit or rather he was editing the the prose in ambit so he said to me i wrote him a letter soon after i'd arrived in um in los angeles he liked the letter he said why don't you you know why don't you write me some more letters <laughs> give me a bit of a you know story around it so I did. I started writing him letters. Those edited letters. Uh, some some of the um, some of the editing was in, you know, had to be done, but uh, because because of uh, I didn't want to get into trouble for one thing. Um, <laughs> I got to see old friends, and, and I, I got a job working for Evan Kirshner, which was a bit of a nightmare. The guy did Star Trek, uh, second no Star Wars. Sorry, whoops. Um, the Star Wars, um, the second Star Wars movie, I think yeah. it was. He wanted to do a King Arthur story, which 
And I've heard this so many times from film directors and producers. He wanted to be as authentic as possible. And, of course, he didn't know what he was asking for. I did actually try to give him a 5th century Celtic warrior fighter um, at the end of the Roman occupation. But, of course, this, didn't, this isn't really what he meant by authentic. And I make a few jokes in the book about what he was expecting. Um, yeah. One of the best ones was, I think, I had, I had, he had a, the character has a, has a, a black friend from, 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 from the African legion, you know, of, of the Romans, he's come back from Rome. And, and, he, and he remarked famously, did they have black people back then? <laughs> <laughs> as, as well as asking about Hadrian's Wall, you know, is, is that real? And I said, well, it's a photograph, yes. You know, that's what Hadrian's Wall is. <laughs> um, so it was a typical, um, you know, one of those typical English writer goes to Hollywood and um, meets all the absurdities of, of, uh, of Hollywood. It's one of your great names as well. Yeah, you're giving the name of Ike Welper in the book as well. Oh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, talk about how he puts um, ripe melons into in his closet to make his clothes oh, yes, smell of melon. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, he, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he, he took it all was done with absolute seriousness and and you know, conf- you know t- telling me confidentially if you want to keep your clothes smelling fresh. What you need to do is put some uh, ripe fruit in your in your closet, and that'll, <laughs> that'll make it, do the job. It, it was a nightmare working for him. I mean, I, I, every 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 day was a nightmare. I was very glad to get home at the end of it. He he wanted. I've worked with other directors like this, and you get to meet. You get to understand it pretty quickly. He wanted to be an auteur. You know, he didn't actually have the means to be an auteur. That is to say, he didn't have the talent to be an auteur. But he uh, he really wanted to get the reputation of being an auteur. He wanted me to make him an auteur. And in the end, he, he wound up by saying he wanted to have the uh, quality of Bergman with everybody, with no horses, that's right. You know, and, oh, and that's right, Kurosawa and the... And the um, and the and the and 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 of Kurosawa, so there were to be no horses in it. People just running around, presumably in sandals with samurai swords. I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> to the point where I deliberately wrote an unfilmable film because you know I really I knew this was going nowhere. I just had the fun of of writing something that I knew couldn't be um, filmed, and I got paid an extraordinary amount of money for writing a film that I knew wasn't going to be filmed. That's again not for the first time. Other people have done the same thing. I was being paid so much, like and all of my kids out on uh, out to Hollywood, and they had a great time. We visited a lot of the uh, well-known spots uh, in 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 LA, Barney's Beanery, and uh, the uh, the Tropicana, and you know, places like that. Had a pretty it's good a di- time, really. A different experience Except- from do- from doing the land that time forgot them with Amicus. Oh, that was that was a different deal. I mean, I the, the, what happened with um, with that was that I chose not to write the film of the final program because uh, they they you know they said would I write it, but I said no, I don't have any experience of, of film writing, and I think it'd be better if somebody who did have experience of film writing would 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 do it. Uh, and in, in fact, what happened was that uh, somebody who had experience of Film writing, but as an extremely bad film writer, started to, to to try to make this movie, 
in which he, among other things, this was the producer. No, sorry, the, not the producer. The producer was very good, a guy called Sandy Lieberson. But the, the director really had been an art director, again, with, with uh, aspirations to be, a, to be an auteur. The job was so far removed from what I'd, from my book, which I don't mind in films. I mean, I'm not someone who wants every scene to be exactly the same as in the book. But what I do want, and what a good, a good director or producer will insist on, is that the spirit of the, of the book be, be maintained. What this guy was doing, um, you know, I was doing a book which I suppose was in some ways ahead of his time. Jerry you know, is, is, is um, bisexual and generally, you know, however many letters there are now for LGBT and Q, etc., um, in, that, in the community, I wanted him to represent that, which in the seventies was still pretty fresh. Um, but it's, and I've always been like that, and that I've, you know, I've, I've always like I, I like characters who were not identified by their sex or by their race. That that was Jerry Cornelius. Unfortunately, this guy was uh, perhaps of a slightly older generation than mine, and and so he started to make all sorts of terrible sexist jokes in the movie, which I really didn't like. Um, in the end, the, um, John Finch, who's a friend of mine playing Cornelius, and some of the other, they had an extraordinarily good cast. I mean, it was the cast which saved the movie. Um, because what happened is they came to me and they said, um, what's this film supposed to be? You know, they were confused. And George Kularis, who'd been in, um, uh, you know, the Orson Welles film, Citizen Kane, um, he comes up to me one day and says, young man, young man. And uh, I said, um, you know, yes, 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 Mr. Kularis. He said, oh, what, what, what's, this, what's this movie supposed to be about? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. And he said, there you are, he tells some of the other actors. Even the author doesn't know what it's about. And I, I, of course, didn't know to a degree what it was about, but I no longer knew what it was about in the, in the making of the film. This was about a third of the way through. So eventually the, the actors got together with me and asked me what I thought you know, the film was. One of them said, um, you know, it seems like it might be a comedy to me. And I said, yes, it's a comedy. And, 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 uh, and, and, and then they started to get it. Honestly, some of the very best lines in the film, most of the very best lines in, in the film, were the work of the actors. They were, they were ad-libs. And I was very grateful to them. I mean, it was, it was a whole bunch of, of good lines from pretty much every one of the actors. And, and I owed a lot to them that the film had any, you know, any substance at all. But unfortunately, the director had, um, you know, was still turning it into a, into a bit of a mess. So anyway, when that was done and I had lost about a year's work, it had depressed me so badly, I just didn't feel like working again. Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated insisted to the producers um, of, of, who wanted to buy some Burroughs properties, I'd be the writer on, on the film because they knew that I'd got previous Edgar Rice Burroughs experience. I'd done an Edgar Rice Burroughs fanzine. I'd, done, I'd been editor of Tarzan Adventures, which was a juvenile weekly. They knew that I was not only uh, familiar with, with the work, but that I would attempt 
to give it a decent script. So I met with them and, and they said, you know, we're not going to go ahead with the movie unless you do it. So, you know, it's up to you. And I thought, well, I need, I need experience for film writing if I'm not going to have what happened with the final program happen again. I decided that I would, you know, go ahead and, and do the movie. As it happened, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as good a ride as I'd hoped it would be. Jim Cawthorne, who was one of my very oldest friends and had been the main illustrator on, in the Burroughs fanzine and this you know, professional illustrator, was also a keen Burroughs fan. And we both really liked The Land That Time Forgot because it had an idea in it, which is frequently not the case in Burroughs. I mean, the idea is usually, you know, girl gets captured um, man follows girl at the end, uncaptures girl, and that's about you know, the basic story. And in the meantime, you know what's on it are the are the inventive, you know, romantic good stuff, you know, which 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 I liked in, in Burroughs. But but Land That Time Forgot had an idea which which basically was was an it was you know a lost island, very typical King Kong and all of that. But this has actually been written before King Kong on the island. The people go through um, the whole of sort of history of, of humankind and, and before that, the reptilian kind. I mean, the, the, um, all the way through, the, the individuals slowly go from, say, lizards to people. It's a very nice idea. It's, I mean, scientifically, it's, it's pretty weird, but, but it was one of the few solid ideas in, in Burroughs of that kind. And uh, both Jim and always been attracted to it for that reason. Jim had been, was going to have done a, a comic strip based on the land that time forgot, but decided, I don't think he could find somebody to, to, you know, to run it. So, but he'd already broken it down as a, as a story. We, we worked on it a little bit more to, to tighten up the story because there's a, there's a very, very long bit of buggering about at the beginning where you know, people take over a submarine, then they lose the submarine, and they take over a submarine again, stuff like that. So we, we cut, you know, brought that down to something a bit more manageable and less boring, quite frankly. And then I wrote the script from that breakdown. But I, I also said, you know, are you sure, you know, that Burroughs, Edgar's Burroughs Incorporated, are going to uh, supervise the, the script? And they said, oh, yes, certainly, you know, we, that's, that's the deal we have with Burroughs. So I said, no volcanoes going off at the end then, you know, the usual ending of most um, lost world movies at that time. And they said, no, 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 no volcanoes going off at the end. And so on. Well, of course, you know, we, we were going on pretty nicely, I have to say. There were some pretty good actors in, 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 the, in the roles. Again, rather slightly more experienced actors, not quite as good as, say, the best team of Hammer actors, I would could have done with Peter Cushing in it, but he there wasn't really a part for Peter Cushing in it, um, or Christopher Reed, Reed. We, you know, we got busy. We 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 wrote the script, delivered the script, and off they went. And we would go out occasionally to see how the film was going, and it seemed to be going all right. And then one day, I'm out at Shepperton. We're walking along one of the paths through through the you know through through Shepperton's land. And looking down, I saw these sort of tubs, like oil cans, big oil drums, buried in the in the in the path, and full of of something sort of slightly familiar, but but I couldn't quite make out what it was. And I said, oh, "What are those?" And they said, "Well, that's the oatmeal." 
And I said, well, what's the oatmeal for? I don't remember there being much in the way of tubs of oatmeal in the, in the original. And they said, oh, well, that's for, um, you know, that's, that's for when the volcano goes off. <laughs> and, and, you know, people, I um, mean, it's supposed to be lava. It always passes very well for lava, which apparently it does too, I have to say. Um, it's, it's nearly always oatmeal, apparently. So I said, but I thought, etc. You know, um, we weren't having any volcanoes. Well, you know, this happened and that happened. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we don't know if we're going to be, you know, don't know how the movie's going to go, whether we're going to be able to make the sequels and so on and so forth. And I, of course, had written it because it was really one third of, of, a, of a novel. There were three novellas made up the whole the whole story. And and the ending that I'd done was a rather uh, melancholy sort of ending, uh, where we don't know how the last other survivors, if they're ever going to get off the island, and they put a message in a bottle, you know, and and, that, and it, that's how it starts with the message being found in the bottle and the story being told that way. So I said to the horrible little producer, who was a classic, and I I mean there are many. American producers who are not like this. A director, I'm sorry, not not producer. The uh, in fact, I was I was you know I'd been working with um, with Sandy Leverson on the final program, and Sandy had a very clear idea of what the final program was supposed to be. He, he was one of the team that had been involved in in um, you know some very good English Renaissance films with David Putnam, people like that. But this guy was not like that. He was a classic sort of wise-cracking, cigar-chewing, three-foot-high bundle of ego. I mean, ego, ego all the way. And uh, so I, you know, I put it to him, this is not, not what we're supposed to do. And he said, oh, well, listen. That. So it, privately, in my mind, I thought, right, you know, I, I, I had a contract to do three, three stories based on land that time forgot. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not doing, I'm not doing any more of these. But Jim was, was um, well, I don't know whether he needed the money more. I mean, he never, Jim, Jim was from Gateshead, and he never really spoke very much about his plans. I mean, he's extremely eloquent on paper, but um, very much for a, a closed-mouthed Geordie on, um, you know, uh, otherwise. So he never really told me why he wanted to do this, but he decided he wanted to stay on the movies. So I said, fine, you know, you, you stay on them and I'll... Uh, I'll get off them. I mean, I, I I didn't have any problems with that. If they, you know, if they'll allow that. Well, in the end, Jim saw the beginnings of the second film, which was, I think, the people that time forgot, and it was so far removed from the book, he just couldn't carry on in you know in all conscience. So 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 Jim stepped off the picture. Jim Jim was very responsible in the early days for visualizing Elric for you, wasn't he? Kind of oh, absolutely. Produced, yes, Jim, yeah. Jim 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 and I. I mean, we'd worked together right from the very beginning. You know, I'd known him since I think I was about 15, 16. I'd used him an awful lot in Tarzan Adventures because uh, I'd used the magazine to, uh, well, to, to promote Burroughs' characters, you know, John Carter and, and uh, Deja Thoris and Tarzan and, you know, all the rest of them. Essentially, Tarzan Adventures became a, a sort of a, a version of, of Barraziana, the, the 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 fanzine I was doing, and Jim could write very well as well. He he he'd written serial for us, and you know, and he'd, he'd also scripted an, another and, and drawn another another serial for for Tarzan. So when I was first talking about Elric, which would have been in the 
I suppose about 1957 or 8. I, I hadn't been commissioned to write anything, but I was toying with the idea of a character like Elric. Jim at that time was still living in Gateshead, so I would write to him and send him a page or two of, of, of what I'd written uh, of Elric. Jim would, would draw it and and, uh, and send it back. And it was just 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 fun, you know. We weren't, we weren't we didn't have any plans to sell it to anyone. And uh, so Jim had almost as much to do with the early visualization of Elric as 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 I did. When I was uh, I was working for Fleetway IPC were at that time the, the biggest comic magazine producers in the world, I think. I think DC liked to say they were, but they, they didn't have anything like our circulations. I mean, you know, we were if we went below seven hundred and fifty thousand, we really thought we were you know, we were in trouble. A million was kind of the what we all aimed for. I, I was working for Fleetway on Sexton Blake Library for some time. And also writing a lot for things like Carl the Viking and with with Don Lawrence, who's a very good good uh, artist, and various other very very accomplished artists on very on various well known um, stories for Lion Comic and Tiger Comic and and the annuals. And I was chiefly in charge of annuals because I was the only person who had done both. I'd worked on comics and on on text. And because I because I knew how to to lay out text, I was you know sort of brought in to do the annual the annuals. I really developed um, my writing style developed largely through through doing those annuals, I suppose, and and the comics. And it, it teaches you a tight way of writing. It's a, it's a it's a it's a pretty good training. One day I'm uh, I'd stopped. I, I was freelancing for IPC, but I was in the office. And bumped into a friend of mine called Harry Harrison. Harry Harrison was a science fiction writer who'd done um, some very good, funny um, science fiction as well as some good. He did uh, Make Room, Make Room, which became um, Silent Green. Stainless uh, Steel Rat as well. Yes, Stainless Steel Rat and uh, Bill the Galactic Hero and so on. And uh, he was doing Death World uh, as a comic for one of the boys' papers, I think it might have been Boys' World. Harry said, I'm meeting a guy called Andy Vincent, who was, I think, the editor at that time of Boys' World. Um, and we're going over to the pub. Um, you know, we're going to meet Ted Carnell there. Do you want to come? Well, I knew Ted Carnell. He was the editor of the, the main English science fiction magazines, New Worlds, Science Fantasy, and Science Fiction Adventures. Um, Ted, a very nice guy. I'd written... Some sh- I told him some short stories, but nothing very spectacular. Um, but we got on very well. So I was, I was happy to go over. And while we're talking in the pub, he, he says to me, oh, I told him that I was writing, I'd been writing a Conan story for Fantastic Universe, an American magazine. This was through um, El Sprague de Camp and a, and a guy called Hans Stappen Santerson, who was the editor. You know, I was a professional writer. I'd pretty much write whatever anybody paid me enough for, you know. So um, I told Ted, this is, oh, well, you know, I was thinking um, that Science Fantasy could could do with, um, you know, a story or two like that, you know, the same sort of thing. There was no name for sword and sorcery in those days. That was later worked out between me and Fritz Leiber in a, in a magazine called Amra, which was 
a magazine for people who are interested in what became known as sword and sorcery. Yeah, I said, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been doing Conan's story for, for Hans. And uh, he said, oh, well, you know, maybe you could do something for me. And uh, cut a long story short, I did him what was my first Elric story. In the story, I pretty much finished him off. Um, well, I didn't quite finish him off, but I finished the story off. It was just one short story called The Dreaming City. That was it. I didn't really expect anything else. It was about uh, 10,000, 15,000 words. You know, Ted liked it and bought it. As it turned out, it, they were the, I mean, I just say this with all due modesty, um, it, they turned out to be the most successful stories that he'd, that he'd uh, run for, you know, in the magazine. So he asked for another. Well, again, being a, a working writer, I, I did them another, and that went down well, and the next one went down well, and so on. But it wasn't really enough to save the magazines from uh, from the publisher who was who was going who decided to close them all down. I mean, this is not not really the fault of the magazines as much as the decision by the publisher to get out of that kind of publishing. Um, so Ted was told me this, so I I had to kill Elric off, so I did Stormbringer for the last four issues. And uh, in fact, I pretty much filled up um, science fantasy with, with, with most of its fiction for the last few issues, because I, I was, uh, that's what Ted wanted. Uh, so that was it, you know, Storm Ring, and I, and I wrote an editorial in New World saying what a shame New World is going bust, you know, or not going bust, but you know, being stopped. That was published. In the meantime, another publisher came along and said, oh, we'd like to publish New Worlds and Science Fantasy, you know, so let's, can we have a go? There was a negotiation. A friend of Brian Aldous's called Kirill Bonfiglioli actually was a master swordsman <laughs> for Balliol. He'd been an Olympic swordsman. He thought that I would rather do science fantasy, but in fact, I preferred to do New Worlds. The title had more, more um, scope. Than, than science fantasy. There it was. I did. I did. I started doing new worlds, but I did, and, and that's really where where the so-called new wave of science fiction started. Between, I mean, it was myself, Ballard, and a guy called Barry Bailey. And you've incorporated those stories in your memoir, in your fictionalized memoir, Whispering Swarm, which again I've been enjoying. You are a fictional character who knows you're a fictional character, but also. Yes. Really, Michael Moorcock. Uh, so yes. what, what was the process of creating that in the fancy, fancy well, world um, of Alsatia? Uh, actually, it, it started my, my sort of non, non-fantasy publisher, Jonathan Cape. Um, I brought the Colonel Piat books to an end, and they were, they were books about the or, of comedy, about the origins of the Holocaust, which had worn me out a little bit. And uh, and another book called Mother London, which I'd written in the meantime because because the, the Holocaust had rather rather taken it out of me, and I wanted to do something a bit more celebratory to um, so I did I did I did Mother London. So anyway, when this all came to an end, uh, when Piet was finished, the publisher said to me, he said, "What are you going to do next?" I said, "Well, I'm not quite sure yet. You know what I'm doing." He said, "Well," he said, "Why don't you write us a memoir?" And I said, well, the reason I haven't written a memoir, I've been asked before, was because if I do it, if I do a fair memoir, if I do it 
do it accurately, I'm probably going to hurt some people's feelings, and I don't want to do that. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. We'll get the lawyers onto it. And, they'll, they'll put it. And, I, and I thought that wasn't quite the point. I didn't want to hurt people's feelings. It wasn't, I wasn't worried about them suing me. In fact, I didn't think anybody would sue me. But I really was, you know, it's a very difficult thing to tell the truth and to be as accurate as possible and, and not, not. Essentially, what you're doing quite often is contradicting someone else's version of the truth. I mean, everybody has their own version of the truth. It's, you know, when you get to a certain age, you know that, particularly if you're married, and uh, you, you, you know, you, you, you know, you don't, uh, you don't want to do that. So I said to him, "Well, I want to do that," and he said, "Well, you know, that's that's what I want you to do." And uh, and I actually got a bit fed up. I mean, that that you know, we'll get the lawyers onto it was not my idea of uh, of the right response. I was over here in Paris telling my great friend Jean Fromentel, who is, I think, acknowledged in The Whispering Swarm, and I said to him, you know, I really, really left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. He, he said, well, why don't you write a literary memoir that is, you know, maybe done as fiction? So I wasn't sure I could do that either. So I, I, I put it aside. I mean, I liked the idea, but I wasn't sure I was up to it, really. Eventually, after a lot of thought, I mean, this was this took some years before I could get, get the thing together properly. I, I decided I could do it. I could. There was a way of doing it, and that was to include my ideas about the multiverse, which are a lot more sophisticated than, um, say, Marvel's, which, um, I mean, the, people have lifted the idea of the multiverse in order to keep telling the same damn story over and over again and also to explain discrepancies, you know, in, in, uh, in other stories. And that wasn't quite what I was trying to do. So I, 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 and I, did, I actually wrote a comic called um, Michael Morcott's Multiverse in the 90s. And uh, there it is. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, you know, there, there is a way of doing this in that, in that there are alternatives to the truth. And I can write, I can, I can tell the truth, but I can put it into a context where I'm also clearly not telling the truth as well. So it doesn't have to contradict somebody else's version of the truth per se. It could, you know, it can it can do it can do both. It can it can tell the truth and tell a pack of lies at the same time. Plus, it enabled me I, I wanted to develop the idea of the multiverse a bit more and make it clear to readers that I wasn't just describing a bunch of alternate worlds or anything you know, of that sort, that I was actually trying to describe um, a scientific or pseudo-scientific idea. These days it's called a many-worlds theory. I mean, and, and I had a number of ideas around, around that, if you like, somewhat more intellectual than, than, uh, than, than those in Doctor Strange, although I, I'm, I'm very fond of Doctor Strange, as a matter of fact, but nonetheless, this was, this was you know, it's not, it wasn't quite what I was trying to do. I took the ideas of, of Mandelbrot, Mandelbrot's chaos theory, and his ideas of self-reproduction self and so on, where, where and I, uh, my idea is that, that if you did have such a thing as, as, um, as, a, as, an, as identical worlds, that they would 
you couldn't, you wouldn't, you might not be able to see them because they might be too big to see or too small to see. That they 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 might simply just be there but unseeable. Um, the, the way that that when you see a, a Mandelbrot set being uh, reproduced, sorry, DVDs of of, of, of a Mandelbrot set. Uh, changing very very slightly, but not not much at all. You know, just tiny changes. After about you know ten million of these, you might get a slightly different world, but not. Also, there might be there might be um, repercussions to this that you might not be able to exist in it just like that. And it just, you know, switching from one to another, that you might have trouble with being too big or too small, and you know, all sorts of other stuff like that. In the Whispering Swarm which is the first of, the, of those, I, I didn't deal too much with the, with the, with the way the alternatives worked. It's not, it doesn't have a huge science fiction element as such, but it, it does tell these different stories, as well as a purely you know, enjoyable um, idea of, of, uh, of highwaymen who hold up trams, because I like highwaymen and I like trams tramway men or whatever you call them, ride out at night with their with their big horse pistols and their masks and their three-cornered hats and ride over to you know, the Hampstead Heath and hold up the uh, the Hackney Express. And they ride out of uh, a place that's been used before in fiction called Alsatia, which which was a real uh, area of Whitefriars where, where around Fleet Street. Um, it suited the authorities of several centuries actually to allow people to go there and stay there it's better to have them all in one all the rogues in one place than it was to have them scattered through london and also um the white friars themselves were monks who who gave um sanctuary to people who were on the run from the law essentially on the run from from religious law at the time but it gradually became on the run from mm. any law i conceived this first story the whispering swarm in it i can hear this whispering going on and i'm not sure what it is and of course it's the other worlds really and, and not just i'm using it also as a it's meant to show how we are as individuals as well as hmm. as well as the scientific idea you know and we have many different identities that we show to the world, you know, and uh, and I have many different identities, like my practical identity, like you know, paying the gas bill, as it were, and my imaginative identity, like holding up trams on, on Hampstead Heath. So that that's how I, I started it. The second book, which is called The Woods of Arcady, which came out I think just a month or so ago. It's more to do with the kind of identities we put on ourselves when we're inventing things or reading things, you know, or, or playing games indeed and, and taking on identities um, in which we pretend to be someone else. But it's also with the characters that I, that I liked to pretend to be when I was a kid in particular, you know. So, yeah. I, I, so that, that one is more about romantic adventure. It has you know Tarzan in it, and not not the real Tarzan because I, I don't think I could be. I think ERB would think twice about that. But um, but Tarzan, Tarzan type character, Alan Quatermain type character, and very and the Three Musketeers. Um, luckily, I think they're well out of copyright now. Um, yeah. So, um, but you know, a whole a whole bunch of, of different different romantic 
um, and enjoyable characters that, yeah. that, that we, we like to assume. It was interesting to see Prince, Prince Rupert as a character because I come from Bolton and he's a bit of a hate figure because we were a parliamentary stronghold yes, and uh, right. there was a big massacre up here by uh, Rupert. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. funny to see him as a hero. I think. Yes, well, quite. I mean, he's... Uh, no, he is a hero too, as far as I'm concerned. You know, um, <laughs> gen, gen, a genuine—I um, mean, a, a, a genuine Protestant, as it were. You know, not just a political Protestant. And uh, he did actually have a lot of adventures. You know, he went to various different parts of the world and, and all of that, and was interested in scientific ideas. So he's an ideal. You know, he's ideal for me. And and uh, he comes back a bit in the in the third book as well, which is it's called The Wounds of Albion. It's closer to the format of the first one, the, the Whispering Swarm, than the second one. The second one is more romantic and adventurous and with probably a bit less um, autobiography in it. Yeah, and, 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 and Prince Rupert is, you know, trying to save poor old King Charles. And um, also I was, I was trying to... I do this with with quite a lot of the books that I've written, which is to introduce a, a genuine time which which is a sort of is on the cusp of history when when there is a sort of a serious change in in what's going on. So I was dealing with Cromwell in that, and uh, not so much in the in the second one. There's uh, it's <laughs> it's a bit more bit more fun. And although I, don't, I think the others are fun, I hope the others are fun too. Yeah, um, and, and funny as well. Yeah, well, I hope so too. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, I like to make him laugh, make him cry, you know, <laughs> keep him reading. I've got an incomplete uh, collection of the multiverse comics, but I believe uh, Titan are reprinting them yes, later in the year. Absolutely. And they're doing a better version than the DC version of the, of the complete. Um, for one thing, it's in hardback, although it's in two volumes, and uh, the DC was only in one volume. But what did DC did was cut out a lot of coming next week, or rather coming next month sort of pieces, which are little plays on words to do with what's coming, and don't actually, they contradict yeah. some of the stuff that, that is it's not really happening. I mean, I, I, I say, you know, coming next month, um, you know, the edge of tomorrow or whatever. And uh, and that has nothing to do whatsoever by, <laughs> but but it, it means it's 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 a combination of absurdism, which is like the Jerry Cornelius stories, for instance, and the Buggly Otherly stories, which are also to do with my my liking for that kind of fiction, to do with absurdism. Um, William Burroughs being one of them, but. Quite a few others too. Morris Richardson, in fact, being being one of my favourites, which I would strongly recommend. It recommend it's the Adventures of Engelbrecht, which uh, have been reprinted by the uh, Manchester firm of Savoy, which I think there are still some copies. Mm. And I would, uh, and if if you if you have any hard earned cash that you want to slip into something, it's going to keep actually keep its value then by a Savoy edition of The Adventures of Engelbrecht, um, which, are, which are about the famous um, sporting dwarf, Engelbrecht, who once fought 10 rounds with a grandfather clock. He's in the ring with a grandfather clock, and he has to borrow time from, from other, other members of his club um, in order to keep, to keep fighting 
the grandfather clock who has got a lot more time than he's got. That's what happens. Anyway, so absurdism, you know, and comedy is, is one of the things that I like to have in, in those books. In The Whispering Storm, you, you say that every author is looking for the character that's going to define them. And we mentioned Elric, and clearly that's going to be a character that is, has been stolen so many times. But do you think that the multiverse itself is going to be your greatest legacy? I don't know about legacy. I think I probably, you know, my legacy is, uh, is, I was saying this to a friend today, if I'm lucky another 50 years, people will never refer to me. But um, I don't know, really. Um, I think there's, you know, there's three, three things. Well, there's, there's the Eternal Champion, which gives you a character who can live through other periods of time, experience other things. So he can be a real, you know, ordinary person going through various ordinary uh, adventures or, or experiences. So in a sense, in the multiverse, of course, links with that. These are all done very early on in my career. Eternal Champion was done when I was 17 initially. It became uh, Blood Red Game, I think it was, or The Sundered Worlds which was, I was, I think, 23 when I when I did that. So I'm really, you know, these are very early ideas, which I've just increased the sophistication, I hope, of, of, you know, of them. I don't know about, I don't know about legacy. It's a, it's a slightly, um, it's too posh a word, perhaps. People don't tend to remember who came up with, with certain ideas, and neither should they, really. It's, this, is, this is how things go, you know. I, I, um, I'm pretty reconciled to that. And I think of H.G. Wells, you know, who first came up with the idea of alternate worlds. I didn't come up with the idea of alternate worlds. I just came up with the idea of a system and what they would be called and how they would, could be used. Nobody thinks, you know, I mean, a few people pay lip service to Wells, you know, inventing the atomic bomb. Which he did, you know. Which, well, I mean, he didn't invent it, but <laughs> as we know from recent films, but uh, <laughs> but he, but he, you know, he predicted the atomic bomb again, based on on other people's um, ideas. Now, the the difference, I suppose, between me and Wells in this sense is that I didn't. He did tend to base his ideas on existing scientific ideas, whereas I tended to. Um, come up with them without, you know, not having read, as it were, previous scientific ideas. With the multiverse, there are a couple of people in the 1960s, pretty much around the same time as me, who were coming up with many worlds theories, much as I was. It's fair to say that they didn't precede me, but the idea was in the air. My feeling is the idea was in the air because of Hoyle, actually, Fred Hoyle, and his idea, uh, or rather his popularizing of the idea of the expanding universe. Once you, have, once you have an expanding universe, you have a world that is permanently entropic. I mean, it's just essentially disappearing. It takes a long time, but it, it gradually disappears. The, the universe expands, expands until it's gas, then it's not anything really. This idea is very upsetting to most of us um, who don't like the idea of our substance vanishing or the world's substance vanishing or, or indeed our legacy vanishing. Around that time, 
people were coming up with with metaphysical ideas, essentially, rather than physics, in which they they really thought of alternatives to that to the expanding universe. And if, if for instance, you've got constantly re- replicating universe or that fades and then reproduces itself, you know, and keeps on doing that, keeps reproducing, then you've got an alternative which is acceptable to your fear of death. I mean, essentially, it's the fear of death, and and so we, you know, we half of what we do, if not all of what we do, is is driven by the fear of death, um, of not wanting to die, or rather, not wanting our um, something we did that we think is important, or, or 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 just you know, just having kids or whatever it is. We don't we don't want to die, so we invent all these alternatives: heaven and fairyland and you know, all sorts of places. Um, and and we you know it's understandable. That's that's because we are thinking creatures, and we don't we don't, <laughs> we're terrified. Um, <laughs> and so so I think that's largely how we we came up with these ideas. Or, or the various scientists, metaphysics people, and cheap science fiction writers like myself came up with with, with these ideas because we were just gibbering, terrified. Um, of, of you know of, of it all going away forever. Um, whether <laughs> for all I know, we do what we invent becomes real. I mean, we may invent reality, you know, in which case we're uh, you know good for us. You know, we 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 we're doing something useful. To me, that's that's why we we you know, why the multiverse came into existence. <laughs> so. Thanks, Mike, for uh, spending this time with us. I just want to say that um, I told my mother that I was uh, interviewing you today, and uh, she said, "That's amazing! You've been surrounded by his books since you were a boy." So uh, it's a great honour for me to spend this time with you. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, well, I enjoyed it. You know, as one always enjoys talking about themselves. <laughs> 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 Games Master Screen. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Dirk. No, we're not in the pub. No. We're in an unusual place, actually. Yeah. We're up amongst the pigeons. <laughs> in another we? municipal, in another bland municipal room somewhere. In the roof space with lots of oh, pigeons. Yeah. There's quite a lot of pigeons around at the moment, isn't there? There is. Rats with wings, as my dad always says. Rats with wings. Rats with wings. I think uh, part of it's down to the fact that the resident hawk that used to reside in the centre of... Yes, there used to be a, a couple of, of hawks, didn't there? Yeah. And it kept them away, but not anymore. They're, they're back. They're back. They're back with vengeance. They're vengeance. Anyway, enough pigeon chat. We're here uh, in a special Moorcock Multiverse edition. We're going to talk about multiverses. Okay. Before we get to that, though, we're going to go a bit of a prefab sprout game. Are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah, you like to put me through this, don't you? Prefab Sprout, yeah, go on. So what I've got here are the titles of four Moorcock short stories. Three of the titles are legitimate. Mm-hmm. One of them I've made up. Okay. Now, for purposes that will come clear, mm-hmm. I won't be able to give you a quick press A of the short story. I'm just going to give you the title. Just the title, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise I'll give too much away, won't I? You mean I'd guess? Whether... You'd be able to guess yeah. what it was, yeah. Okay. okay, first off. The first one is... Master of Chaos. 
Master of Chaos, is that? Master of Chaos. Well, give me all. Yeah, okay. Don't the next one. Master of Chaos, that's... Mm, oh, it's got the word chaos in it, hasn't it? There's a lot of that in Moorcock, so... Maybe, <laughs> although... The swastika setup. The swastika setup. Okay. Okay. The quantum assassin. The quantum assassin. Okay, quantum assassin. And uh, finally, Gold Diggers of 1977, open brackets, 10 claims that won our hearts, close brackets. So which of those <laughs> the last, The last ones. I don't like, I, I don't like to, uh, I, I don't want to be too critical of any of these titles because you've interviewed me, you might be listening. <laughs> well, so I'm going to sit here and go, oh, that sounds like a rubbish title. That sounds like some kind of rubbish you've made up and it's now... It's something the great man has made of. So I, I, I don't like to be too... Uh, but the last one sounds... The last one sounds ridiculous. The last one sounds ridiculous. Sorry, Mr. Moorcock, it does. Sounds ridiculous. I, and I don't think... It's too out there, that. You wouldn't have made that up because it doesn't sound... It doesn't actually sound like a Michael Moorcock. If someone had said, is that a Michael Moorcock story? I'd have said, no. Do you want me to say it again? Yeah, go on. But I, I can't, I, I can't believe you made that up because it's so, it stands out like a sore thumb. So unless you've been very, very generous towards me and giving me an obvious choice, I'd, I'd say that isn't one. Gold diggers of 1977, open brackets, mm. 10 claims that won our hearts, close brackets. No, I, I think that's a real one. That's a real one. As unlikely as it may seem, it seems so unlikely. It must be real. I have a feeling the quantum assassin might be real as well. That rings a vague bell in the back of my mind somewhere, the quantum assassin. Okay. So what were the other two? The Master of Chaos? Master of Chaos and the Swastika setup. I'm going to say the Swastika setup is the fake one. The Swastika setup is actually Jericho Neely's story. Oh, okay. Every time. <laughs> Go on. The Gold Diggers of 1977, 10 Claims That Won Our Hearts, is actually the uh, accompanying short story to The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Oh, um, okay. So, uh, yeah, Mike yeah. Moorcock actually produced a, a story that yeah. accompanied the publicity material that's commissioned by Virgin in that way, like a, a newspaper format, mm. and it was collected in the uh, Casablanca collection so that's uh that's, that's a genuine it's master chaos isn't it no master of chaos it's the one i thought was a real one that in the back of my mind the quantum assassin is quantum, that... quantum assassin is one i've made up <laughs> well i master of chaos uh it actually appears in the singing citadel and i actually covered it in uh the appendix n when i appeared on that podcast all oh, right talk about singing so much tension and pay yeah well I, I don't like to direct people to that one because that's where the uh, famous uh, This is a Book of Four Halves incident. <laughs> Mind you, we're talking about the multiverse. So yeah, possible, it could, it could, you could have a Book of Four Halves, couldn't you, in the multiverse, really? Because you'd have two books with two halves each. And it's, that's four halves. The Quantum Assassin. Now, I made it up, but I didn't really make it up. Right. I asked Chat GTP to come up with a Michael Moorcock wow. title. Really? Wow. And that was convincing, wasn't it? Just come up with a convincing one, yeah. Yeah. The quantum assassin. It does sound like a, yeah, it does sound like a, a sort of, not, not, not just a Moorcock story, but it sounds like a kind of 1960s, 1970s short story, doesn't it? it anybody really. That's kind of interesting, that, isn't it? With, with uh, that 
chat thing because if you'd have said to me, it's a J.G. Ballard story, I'd think, oh, yeah, yeah, I can yeah. believe that. Or, or any any of those kind of writers, Quantum Assassin, sounds quite a plausible yeah. short story title, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe we should all be worried by that. Do you not think about it? Yeah. Possibly. Maybe. I want to talk about the multiverse because that's a creation by uh, Moorcock. Yeah. And it's kind of ubiquitous these days when you look at like films, particularly like Marvel, have adopted it, haven't mm. they? And everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's become a trope, hasn't it? Yeah. And I would say that RPGs tend to gravitate towards mm. multi-worlds and multiverse. I think it's a very appealing idea, isn't it? But I would, I think it's something that needs to be handled with a lot of caution and a lot of care because I think whenever you watch something, you watch the Marvel films or other things, or even you play games that have multiverses in them, they can be great fun. Also, they can drift into being ridiculous and really irritating, I think, for me personally. I, I, I kind of blow on cold on a bit. Sometimes multiverse, great, but other times I think, it's an excuse for anything, just an excuse for any old stupidity, isn't it? Some of the Marvel stuff, I think, at times drifts into that. It drifts into just, it's an excuse to be as silly as you like and then go, hey, it's just a multiverse, isn't it? So don't worry about it. But yeah. other times it, it can be a great thing. In the right hands, it can be a great thing and an interesting thing, but in the wrong hands, it can be a bit daft. It's got a scientific basis, and that's what Walker always refers to, just yes, yeah. many worlds theory. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it's got its roots in ancient science, I think, because I think it was originally the Greeks came up with this idea that things split and went yeah. off into different yeah. directions, yeah. but it become popular. Well, it is a literary trope, but I think, I think more than that, I think games gravitate towards it because of the... Freedom it gives you to yeah. do different yeah. things. And what characterises them is that continuity of character. So there was, there was appeal back in the day, back in the early parts of role playing, having D and D adventures that went into uh, Gamma World, for example. Oh yeah. 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 Because you could have the same characters. Transplanting your characters into another, another universe yeah so a lot of D characters dropped into gamma world something like that at what point does it become unconvincing for you then in that thing i think when we talked about that we were less convinced than that that, that free movement between gamma world and the world of A and D. i'd probably be all right with that now that's yeah that's okay i think what it is is it can be annoying when it, it's an excuse for just sloppily putting something together where, you know, it's just, just, oh, it's a multiverse. Oh, well, let's have a scene where everyone's a giant mushroom or something like that, or whatever, just like daftness. I think that can be the problem with it. But, and we and would... I, suppose, I suppose role-playing games it can be a bit like that, can't it? There's a fine line, and we're going we're, we're gonna to talk about this very shortly, but we've been playing Rogue Mistress, haven't we? Stormbringer mm-hmm. Rogue Mistress. And... We've, we've had discussions about this because you, you've said to me, you're running it, and you've said to me, oh, God, it's daft. It's daft, haven't you? You've yeah. said at times it's daft. But as a player, quite quite enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it a lot. I think it's quite good. And I think that's the thing. It's a fine line to tread, isn't it, between daft and innovative. 
and interested, you know, and that yeah. very quickly. If you're not careful, you can go from being interesting to be just being a bit almost almost a bit bored, almost a bit boring. You know, I, I found them. Um, it's like those Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. Yeah, they're, they're like that. I just find them a bit boring. It's then stupid because there's loads of stuff going on, but it's a bit boring because anything and everything's going on. Anything, everything, all at once, all going on. But a bit boring. I find it a bit tedious. But it's a, it's a fine line, isn't it, that people tread with it, I think. So do you think that it's subjective then? That's part of the trouble that people have in mm. these worlds. Because what, what kind of frustrates me sometimes is that the G word gets pulled out, doesn't it? The, the G torpedo. The G torpedo. Which is gonzo. Gonzo, yeah, it's gonzo. Whatever that means. It's a bit like a discussion about Pope. Yeah, a few years ago, isn't it? People say, it's like Pope, isn't it? And you know, what are we talking about? No one really knows quite yeah. what you mean. Gonzo's the same, isn't it? It's a bit gonzo. It's almost like people say it's gonzo if you don't like it. Yeah. It does seem like a pejorative term. Yeah. Like this weekend, I ran my Delta Green yeah. meets Doctor Who. Meets John Lennon. Meets John Lennon, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was described as gonzo. Now, I don't think it was gonzo. <laughs> it was it was rooted within Doctor yeah. Who, which, again, is a multiverse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, universe. yeah. yeah. So at what point does it become gonzo? Yeah, I don't really know. It, it's a word that's used. It can be used in a pejorative way, but it can also be used as a defence for anything. Yeah, yeah, it's very gonzo. Yeah. Is it? Right, OK. <laughs> yeah. if, you say, if you say, I don't really like that, yeah, it's gonzo, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, as in, that's the defence for being daft. So they sound like we've got a downer on them. No, I don't want a downer on the multiverse. I'm a big fan of Mocha, can't I? So I do like the multiverse idea, but I think it's how it's it's how it's handled. I think yeah. that's the that's the thing. It's how it's handled. We were talking earlier in the week about is it a quorum? You said in some of the quorum stuff. Yeah, there's like it gets a bit daft. You know, the multiverse thing. Whereas in, in our, for example, it's more just about this eternal champion existing in different realms that seem slightly more, sometimes a bit more, not pl- plausible, sorry, we're not plausible, like they, but a bit more controlled, I suppose. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, the Young Kingdom books are more grounded yeah. in a setting. Yes. I think with Hortman to some extent when he heads east mm. or when um, Coram goes on his uh, yeah. multi-world adventures yeah. they become a little bit more surreal yeah. and juxtaposing yeah. different uh, extreme images against each other and it becomes then I don't know, a little far removed from reality and I think in those cases, sometimes the jeopardy is removed because it's so bizarre yeah. and so strange yeah. that it's less interesting than, say, in the Young Kingdoms and some of Elric's uh, picaresque adventures or encounters where it's a bit more... It, when, when they start philosophizing, it becomes a bit more grounding. And, yeah, and I suppose that's what I mean about that. That's the danger of the multiverse. The, the idea that you can, you, you know, it's a knife edge. You've got to walk really with it between it being weird and about these different universes and different planes of existence and different timelines and all that. It's great, but equally, there's a there's a line you can cross where it becomes a little bit silly or or you can lose interest in it i suppose it's particularly difficult in a role-playing game as well because in a novel you can probably go 
been more surreal, surreal as you like, and get away with it because it's a novel. But role-playing game's different, isn't it? Because you've got to get the players on board as well, haven't you? I mean, that's one of the things. It's all right to read a novel where everything's a bit crazy and you enter some weird parallel universe where everything's played of a blancmange or whatever. But it's another thing to bring three or four or five players with you on that journey, yeah. isn't it? That's the thing. And I think that's like with Rogue Mistress. That's one of your anxieties about it, isn't it? As a games master, it's just every, every time we have a session or every time we're about to have a session, you say, oh, sorry, it's a bit crazy now, you know? It's a bit yeah. crazy. And I think your anxiety is that <laughs> you think we're all going to, halfway through, we're all going to say, this is stupid. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? And that's the problem, bringing everyone along with crazy, crazy ideas like that. Yeah. I, I think I read it in uh, Chris's eyes, one of the uh, players that we have, Richard, <laughs> when he's playing, he's kind of got this crumpled up uh, forehead that says, what on earth is going on now? To what be fair, that? to be fair though, his character has had its brain swapped with a different character. Yeah. It's a role-playing challenge, isn't it? Because you, you gave us all an item that we're looking for. Um, a family heirloom or something that we all look for in the in the adventure. Is that part of the adventure? Is that something no, that's something I introduced because I we're going to talk about what makes something more cocky. But one of the elements of more cocky yeah. is that everybody's predestined to find something that's important to them. Yeah. So all the characters need to yeah. discover something. So at the start of the campaign, everybody selected something that was significant that has been lost. But, he, but he's he's looking for a family heirloom. Because he's had his brain swapped. So the character really he's playing is not him. It's a different person. He's got he had a brain swap. It's quite a role playing challenge, I think you've given him that, really. <laughs> well, that's because he got the end of his character ended up with intelligence from about three, didn't it? Yeah. Because Stormbring and notoriously brutal and quite, yeah. you know, we've all lost t- statistics to some extent, haven't we, in our encounters. So. So we're not just talking about multiverse, talking multiple personalities. Multiple personalities in a multiverse, yeah. Yeah. I'd be interested when we look through this, because what we're going to do is put up the Games Master screen. Mm. We're going to look at some games. I'd be interested in this idea of what makes something more cocky in. Mm. Because as you say, does it, is it in the acceptance or the premise acceptance, as Robin D. Laws would might say, that all the players accept that this is what we're playing yeah. and we're up for it, whatever it might bring. Yeah. Um, within reason, we'll accept yeah. What, yeah. the situation that we're playing. Is it that or is does the more cocky multiverse exist in the mechanics? Mm. Does it exist in scenario design? Does it exist in the characters? So, Or is it in the world building? So I think I'd be interested as we go through this for us to kind of look at this. So I'm going to put this uh, screen in front of us. Okay. If you, uh, do you like this screen? It's an Elric exclamation mark screen. It's impressive. Yeah. I'd, I'm quite envious. I'd like it. I'd like a Stormringer or Elric screen, but I haven't got one. And as you know, I'm a big fan of the Games Master screen. Well, this one has been rescued from the vaults. Mm. of Chaosium and Arbor by Doc Cowie mm. in the auction at Chaosium Con this year. And uh, he very kindly donated it to the great library of RPGs. So I shall now erect this in front of me you do. to hide, hide my secrets. 
Stop putting a barrier between us, man. I don't mind you putting that screen in front of us. I have a D8, yeah, of course. Of course, D8. And I'm going to roll because of the, the number of chaos. Of course, yeah. I'm going to roll on this table, apparently at random, yeah. and select from this table a topic to discuss. Okay. okay. Okay, first up. So it's number three. Number three. Oh, it's DCC. Ooh, number three is okay. DCC. Dungeon and Crawl Classics. Yes. Yeah. Which isn't, in essence, uh, multiversal, but that is the system that you turn to, isn't it, when you did our yeah, multiple weekender? Not, uh, yeah, it's not. In essence, it's not. It doesn't involve them. It's not inherently involve a multiverse, but but I think it does. It does allude to planes of existence and all alternate planes of existence. It's, it's peppered with that kind of stuff. I would say it is definitely, it's definitely not Tolkien-esque role-playing. It is not, it's got elves and dwarves in it, but it ain't, that's about all that's Tolkien-esque about it. It is much more an appendix end thing of, of Fritz Lieber and uh, Jack Vance and Moorcock, I think. And it is peppered with that, you know, some of the spell tables refer to different planes of existence and things disappearing into different planes of existence and things appearing from different planes of existence. So it does have that. And, and a lot of the scenarios um, draw heavily on that kind of thing. So when we went on the weekend around the Court of Chaos, which is a, is very more cocky in where you're summoned to the Court of the Chaos Lords, aren't you? They want you to all perform this task of finding this uh, egg that they want. Mm-hmm. And they send you to the planes of law to uh, to find it. And it's definitely, I mean, it's very more cocky. It really is more cocky, isn't it? Completely, the whole idea is. So it's it's got a lot of that in it. Um, but it's not it's not intrinsically like that, you know. Don't have to play it like that. But it, a lot of the scenarios, a lot of the scenarios draw, draw on those things as well, I think. So what makes it more cocky? Because what I'd say about Dungeon Crawl Classics, because notoriously I've kind of, Moved away from it every time I hear it. I'm you do, yeah, you do. Fairly well, but I've played it a couple of times now and played Mutant Crawl Classics. And I've come to the conclusion that it's a very solid set of rules and mechanics, mm. isn't it? Yeah. It's, you know, it? For that kind of D20, D&D yeah. type game, yeah. it feels more robust than some of them. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot going on in it. And I'd say that it's probably more narratively equipped than something like 13th Age, even though 13th Age describes itself yeah. as a narrative. Yeah, I would agree. And because I think the tables that generate story. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's like, a lot of dice around the dice around the tables, even though you look at the tables and think, man, there's a lot of tables here. Table for yeah. every spell, table for this, table for that. That does generate narrative and generate story. You're not just looking at players and going, well, come on, give me a montage about this or that. You know, you can roll on the table and that will generate things and people will elaborate from that. But it certainly draws on Moorcock, I think. Well, I think it's got law and chaos. Yeah, yeah, it's got a lot of things, ideas like that. Rather than good and evil. It has, and that's, that is, that's kind of a big part of it as well. It's very clear, um, in the rules that, the alignments are law, neutral, and chaos, and it makes a point to say chaos isn't necessarily evil in DCC. So as chaos gods and chaos lords who are, you know, some of them are a bit wrong, but equally some of the lords of law are rotten as well. So it makes that 
point, it's not necessarily, chaos isn't necessarily evil in DCC. And that, that is more, that's very Moorcock, isn't it? That it's yeah. not, it's not drawing a moral distinction between them. There can be good and evil on both sides. It's just different approaches to the universe, isn't it? That's, that's what law and chaos are all about. So using my test, where does the Moorcockian essence sit in DCC? Are we saying it's mechanics? It's mechanically Moorcockian? No. Right. Oh, no, no, it's mechanic. No, mechanically. I think it's, it's not this, I, I suppose it's the setting, even though it doesn't have a setting, but it comes from some of the scenarios or some of the things in it, some of the setting stuff in it, I think make it more cocky. I don't think it's the rules necessarily, because the rules are sort of a D&D chassis, and that's the word, isn't it? Chassis, yeah. D&D really, isn't it? I don't know if that's particularly Borkokian, but I think the concepts in it, some of the ideas in it, and some of the ideas in some of the scenarios are very, very, very Borkokian, I would say. That's okay. where it comes from. Let's roll on the table again. Okay. Okay. This time it's a four. Mm-hmm. Now, number four, is we talked about our weekend away when we went to play yeah. Warcock games. Yeah. The game I brought to it was a gun. Oh, yeah. Agon, um, well, Paragon, really, because Paragon is the generic system yeah. which Agon yeah. uh, and yeah. is derived from uh, Agon. Uh, Agon, obviously, is the uh, narrative game of uh, Odysseus going from island to island mm-hmm. and um, completing his quest home uh, in his ship and um, the stories that I generated on the island and it's a, a dice pool system where there are a series of contests and you, you play through a sequence. It's very ordered in that way, isn't it? It's a sequence of events. And um, what I did, I transposed that into the world of Michael Moorcock. And instead of obviously you'd be a sailor on the sea of fate uh, or moving towards the sundered lands, moving from uh, plane to plane, from island to island. And I think what was quite effective with it was you're able to use different descriptors or epithets to describe your characters in much the same way as Morcott does with the Eternal Champions. Mm. And it is possible to play at an Eternal Champion level, yeah. which is unusual, isn't it? And going back to your thing earlier about where does the more cockiness lie in that game i think it is in the rules isn't it yeah i think it is in the rules for that reason because it does allow you to play i mean by its very nature the whole idea is you play i mean the the original game you play the greek heroes don't you yeah um but that translates very well to playing as as we did a bunch of eternal champions because kind of larger than life heroic characters who are as well and th- and this is the thing with Moorcock, isn't it? This is the thing with his, his eternal champions who are significant in the workings of the universe. So when you look at, I want to, I want to call it Aegon, Agon, Aegon, whatever. Um, Vincent Vatson. Exactly. That's, that's the thing with that game, isn't it? That you play characters in the Greek version, you play characters who can be demigods. So they have, you know, they're the children of gods mm. um, and they have influence and they have divine favour. The rules are all about 
drawing on the divine favour of the gods. And also the wrath of the gods are a big part of it. Agon as well, aren't they? Yeah. You know, they're, they're also a big part of it. And that that is very much like Moorcock's eternal champion, the idea that these people are significant and they're agents of the lords of law and chaos, aren't they? That kind yes. of thing. Yeah. So, but in, in Agon, it's very much the rules that allow that. Yes. Because there's not much of a setting, is there? I mean, the setting no. of the original games, the ancient Greeks, you know, whatever. Yeah, okay, we all get that. But there's not much in the way of setting. No. It's very much about how the rules function, how the rules drive it, and what the kind of sense that the rules create about in terms of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And what it allows you to do is things at scale. Mm. So, as you mentioned, um, you know, you take on demigods and uh, we had instead uh, of divine favor you could call on agents of chaos or agents of law yeah. um, to give you advantage on your dice pool but the other thing that it's got is a doom track so That's when you right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, when you take strife when you start yeah. to uh, yeah. fail uh, you'd start to take um, doom which can give you some benefits but yeah. ultimately yeah. is the yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the very, cycle that's, of doom. That, that's very kind of more cocky. Now, I suppose you, you could say that 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 it's like an ancient Greek Greek myth thing that maybe Moorcock draws on ancient Greek yeah. myth. That's so I assume Michael Moorcock invented all this. It's more kind of ancient Greek, but he's yeah. kind of translated that into his novels and, and drawn it, whether consciously or unconsciously, kind of drawn on that sort of thing. Yeah. And the other bit of the scalability is the fact that when you have these contests, a bit like when the Eternal Champions are having contests, you can summon up armies. So yeah, yeah, rather than having yeah. individual battles yeah. in the story um, created, you can have a whole yeah. army of yeah. Lemurians fighting by your side. And it, lend, it lends itself to ideas like that, you know, Elric wading through a load of barbarians from Og. Or any yeah, this black sword in a gun. That's the kind of image that you would get. Whereas going back to something like DCC, that's not a game that would lend itself to that. Yeah, but but a gun has got that kind of yeah cinematic, large scale, broad brush thing that that fits. But it's interesting that that comes from the rules, not the setting. Next one, okay. Next one is Troika. Oh yeah, Troika. Troika, we've spoken about this. Mm. We haven't had a podcast about it, but we've yeah. spoken about it in passing, haven't we? Yeah. Which is based again. We're going to use the word chasse. We'll use the word chasse. chasse. Uh, fighting fantasy. Fighting fantasy, yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. But that is a multiverse setting with random generation of weird and wonderful characters. Yeah. In yeah. weird and wonderful worlds, in weird and wonderful situations. Yeah, yeah. The idea, isn't it, that you travel to different these different realms on a, a golden bar these golden barges that take people around different worlds, I suppose. Are they are they alternate universes? I suppose they I'm not kind of time to think whether they are or not, but they certainly op even if they're not, they certainly operate like that in terms of being very, very weird. Not I'd say nonsensical maybe the wrong word but whimsical whimsical yeah like whimsical worlds that are very all very very different without any real care for consistency or science so it's not like uh, the idea that you're on this golden barge traveling from one world to another it doesn't really talk worry about space or breathing or or consistency within the world it's not like it's not travel when you talk about these worlds 
they're done through inference rather than being explicit, aren't they? They are, and I suppose it's an interesting example because we've talked about DCC where we say, I say it's it's in the setting, it's in the adventures, it's in the stuff there. Not necessarily in the characters, I don't think, with with DCC. It's in the adventures you get thrown into. And with Agon, it comes from the rule set. With with Troika, it probably does come from the characters, doesn't it? Because they do this thing, don't they? They call it like a baked-in setting. So there isn't a setting, but there's lots and lots of different character types, isn't there? And within those character types, there's suggestions of the worlds they come from and the, the mysterious realms that they might come from, that kind of thing that generates uh, the idea that it's some kind of multiverse-type thing that's going on. So I suppose, in a way, with Troika, it comes from... It is within the system itself, but it's not the rules. It's it's, it's the characters, isn't it? Yes. It's inferred through... It's an inference, a suggestion, implication through the characters, isn't it? Of, yeah. of a multiverse. It doesn't really give you one, but you could be playing some sorcerer or wherever and talks about some school of sorcery or something where you've been or, trained. Or somebody who's a barbecuist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and I suppose it's, uh, it's it's funny with Troika because I think um, when we did the Weekender, I considered, and I bottled out really, so suddenly I don't really, but I bottled out of it, but I did consider, didn't I, running dances at the end of time using mm-hmm. Troika because it kind of suggests that, doesn't it, that yeah. world of slightly crazy people. You know, like that, people are obsessed with cups of tea or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> or barbecue, yeah, a chef or something. It's kind of like dances at the end of time, isn't it? More because it's kind of slightly sort of, what's the word? Indulgent. Sort of, yeah, indulgent, decadent kind of yeah. characters. There's a bit of that in Troika, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and I did consider running dances at the end of time using, using Troika as a rule set. Didn't in the end, because I'd got the nerve to do it. But that's, that is more like that. But it comes through the characters, doesn't it? You know, in, in the way that something like Dance at the End of Time does, doesn't it? Because yeah. that, those novels are all about, they're all about the characters, aren't they? Yeah. What the characters do. And that's, that's where it comes from, isn't it? It comes from yeah. the characters rather than the, uh, necessarily the setting or the rules. Let's see if we can get through this table a bit more. Go. Cool. Oh, six. No, this is a, I suppose this is a, a, a set of supplements mm-hmm. that I've become attached to this year since we had Ben Riggs on the podcast. Planescape has been a oh, bit yeah. of an obsession. Yeah, it has become your obsession, hasn't it? Yeah. Which I've not played, I've not played. No, you've not played in any of you, no. Um, and I think this is really inventive because this is really going back to what we were saying about D&D and mm. the idea of uh, multiverse, which has always been there, but it well, codifies it. And even if you get the uh, 5e now, for some reason, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the, it immediately starts, the first page is explaining the multiverse. Now, as a new Dungeon Master... <laughs> That's I, what you need, isn't it, that? Yeah. Don't send them down a, a hole in the ground to fight some goblins. Let's do the multiverse. So the multiverse has always been apparent in uh, D&D, but I think with uh, Planescape, it was an attempt to give it a bit more substance and some uh, stories. And what differentiates this, I think, is the setting is, first of all, you've got Sigil, which is the city in the centre of it, uh, which is like the uh, hub where 
all the adventure start yeah. with numerous gateways into the different planes. And as you pass into the different planes, they all have their own characteristics and they're usually aligned with alignment and things behave differently in the different worlds. These spells will behave differently depending upon the setting that you're in. And I find it attractive because when you read some of the scenarios, they are very inventive. And I think this is one where it is down to the world building and into scenario design uh, because it's just something about... It, it, it. They do feel quite grounded, but by the same token more wildly inventive than you would get in a, on the sword coast or yeah. in the Forgotten Realms or something like that. You have to give it a try. Mm, I do. Yeah, I need to give it a try. You, you, you become quite, you became quite excited about that for a while, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. I remember looking at the monster manuals and seeing modrons and thinking, who on earth yeah. would use modrons? They're ridiculous. Yeah, the ridiculous idea, but they, they do use them and to it, good effect. In the, in the context of Planescape, yeah. they work and they have a logic to mm. them. So this discussion really, what we're saying is that it could be anything. Moorcock, it could, it could manifest in anything. It could be the set, could be the adventures, could be the characters, could be the rules, could be the setting, could be yeah. any of those things. But where did they all come together? I don't think they have done, have they? Yeah. And maybe that's why <laughs> yeah. none of it feels particularly satisfying. Yeah. I'd love DCC to do a Moorcock one, like they've done yeah. a Vance and a Lankmar one. That'd be great, wouldn't it? But uh, I imagine that's that's never going to happen. Let's have a final roll. All right. Oh, it's a one, a critical hit, mm-hmm. and we need to talk about the Rogue Mistress for Stormbringer, oh, yeah. which we're now yeah. playing. Yeah, we're now playing, yeah. So Stormbringer is, I guess, the game we keep coming back to, don't we? And I keep coming back to I've played a lot this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in one form or another. I've done some one-shots and I've been playing this uh, campaign. And this campaign was published in 1991, a collaboration between a number of freelancers, I think, for uh, For Without going too much into it, in one sense, it's extremely railroady because you've got to go across this path. And the way that it's delivered is a series of events that are described to the play characters and they kind of participating. Yeah. Um, there's quite an egregious bit at the beginning, which is unavoidable where the characters have <laughs> demon hearts implanted yeah. into their yeah, chest, yeah. Um, which are like significant because yeah. the rest of the campaign is about how do I get really? free of them. Yeah. And they have some peculiar effects, these uh, these hearts, because it's a demon possession. They can take over and give you some mechanical benefits, but on the come down, you'd start to adopt some chaotic features. Yeah, you become mutated, don't you, by chaos, yeah. One of us has got a third eye. I've got web fingers, web toes, and that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Like I said earlier, you you kind of sometimes say, oh, it's mad, what am I doing running this? It's bonkers, but I've enjoyed it. I, I, I suppose difficult to assess as well, because I know for a fact some of the bits in it that are very railroaded, you, you've tweaked a bit to give us a bit more agency. Yeah. So I don't know how I would feel if you'd run it totally straight. Like there's one, there's a scene with those pirates. I won't give too much away, but there's a scene with some pirates yeah. and we negotiated with them, didn't we? Yeah. And you said to me that in the 
written scenario for it's one of the NPCs that does that. You yeah. Know, you think, sure, I'd feel about that. That seems a bit boring. Yeah. So I, 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 my assessment of it, I'm aware of my assessment of it is based on your version of it rather than completely as written. But I, I think what I've enjoyed about it at first, when we first started playing it, I remember thinking, oh, what I've got into here. But I think it goes back to that Robin D. Laws thing you referred to earlier where what you have to do is really just embrace it. You just have to embrace the whole craziness of it and go, this is a crazy kind of adventure in all these different universes with all these different crazy things going on and just enjoy it, really. Yeah, it it, it jumps from uh, plane to plane. Mm. And I think what's attractive about it is that it's quite good at describing yeah. The different uh, planes. So mm-hmm. I think the first one you're in is a bit of a Roger Dean type. <laughs> it's a bit like that. Uh, prog rock. They all, they all feel a bit like Roger Dean, to be fair, don't they? Do, yeah. they do feel, I wonder whether people who, who wrote the adventure just got all their Yes albums out and based adventures around the government. <laughs> Could have yeah. done, couldn't they? Because yeah. <laughs> these floating <laughs> islands that are t- uh, tethered to a uh, golden orb, which is law, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there's tendrils pulling yeah. them towards chaos, or yeah. uh, pulling this way and that. There's this uh, a plane which has got a canopy of granite mm. instead of a sky, which you described as a concrete snow globe. Concrete snow globe, yeah. yeah. There's the one where you're inside out, aren't you? You're In, yeah. You're inside out. You're turned inside <laughs> out. You're turned inside out. Yeah. But I think I, I enjoy it. Would I have enjoyed it in, at the time when we were playing? If we'd have played it at the time, would I have enjoyed it? I don't know. Because I think it's a bit, it is quite brutal on you as player characters, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've started every session thinking, ah, I can I could die in this. You know, I could, you could die quite easily. And I think you've softened it a bit, haven't you? There was the climbing, some climbing roles where you said in the adventure, it says you make a climbing role, you fail, you fall to your death. Yeah. Think, One climbing role in Stormbringer. What, when yeah. you've got 10%? Yeah. Joking. So I don't know how I would have felt about it um, back in the day. It might have been a, a bit of a thorny subject now if we'd have played it back in the day because it it does feel like it gives your characters a hell of a rough ride really in terms of what it does to them it's, it's almost like it's like an abusive thing where you carry you're playing the character all sorts of weird crap's going to happen to you whether you like it or not so you yeah. better just deal with it but i suppose my attitude to it is to just go embrace it and think right what's going to happen this week god knows what's going to happen but but I, I, it's, yeah, I don't know. If, if I think back to 15-year-old me, what, what, what would I have felt about it? I don't know. Well, there are two features of it which mark it out as, you want to use the phrase old school, because it's not that old school, because it's like the start of the 90s, wasn't it? Spoils, yeah. It has some of the features that you used to get in KLC adventures in that first thing is, it's like you said, it's quite brutal. Yeah. The first encounter is a set of demons. It's meant to be a test, yeah. and then you fight. And it's, I think, you know, you it could have been a TPK in the first yeah, yeah. twenty minutes. Yeah. It's quite exciting because yeah. everybody was on the last legs, but managed to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. defeat it. Mm-hmm. But it, there, but for the grace of the dice and yeah. uh, that element of chaos. Um, so it has that thing where every, every combat you go into it thinking, well, it's a long campaign. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These characters yeah. are, yeah. 
been here for a while and yeah. they're going to survive. Yeah, you're going to this. kill us all off two, yeah. two sessions from the end. But it has got that sense of jeopardy about it, I guess. Hmm. The other feature that it has, which is typical of these adventures of this time, is that you do have those things where, as you say, if you do a roll and if you fail, then it kind of it implies that you stop. You know, you can't go any further. Yes. Yeah. Whereas it's just got a one-way trajectory. This uh, campaign, it's yeah. not. So what would you what would you do if you failed? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a closed lock door. That's it. Yeah. You can't get any so you've got a slab of stone mm. on top of a, a, a grimoire that you've got to mm. recover to get to the next stage. How do you, you know, if you can't move it, what then? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, how do you how do you progress it if you can't get inside and get what you need to get because you need to get it to go up any further? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think sometimes with Stormbringer, the mechanics do can get in the way mm. of enjoying it in that sense. But I think in terms of set scenario design and setting, it is it is great fun. But is it going back to the original question? Is it more cocking? Rogue Mistress, would you say? I would say it was because I think it deliberately references some yeah. more cocking elements. Yeah. What would you think as a player? I think it is because I think, yeah, I think you're right. It deliberately, it does drop, it drops things in that feel very much like they could be uh, one of his, one of his novels. So yeah, you meet that, the guy who's, uh, you meet the guy who's wearing modern clothes. He's, a, he's clearly a, a manifestation of the eternal champion, isn't he, that you meet, yeah. you know. And, and whilst they not, might not be um, eternal champions from the Morcock book, but they're, they're definitely, this definitely saying to you that's what you're encountering in this uh, yeah. in this alternate universe or multiverse thing. You're encountering someone who is a, even if it's a minor manifestation of him, that's what you're encountering. The other bit that makes it typical of uh, Chaos Eam Adventure this time because people often describe Master Nathletap as a sort of sandbox. Mm. And it isn't real, is it? Because you've got to go from one yeah, place to Yeah, you go here, there, and yeah. You've got choice because you, you, you can go here or there. Yeah. You've got choice, but it is only here or there. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Whereas this is quite linear, that yeah, you follow yeah. a certain path. Mm. However, it, what, it, what it brings to mind is uh, Zelda. And you've never played Zelda, have you? No. A Zelda computer game where you can wander around the world mm. and then you land in a particular place or a particular level and that's got its own logic. Yeah, yeah. And that's what this is like. So mm. you go from plane to plane, that particular plane has its own logic. Like, for example, you're inside out. So you, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Because you're inside out, yeah. or you're under the sea yeah. and you can breathe for this adventure only. You yeah. can breathe, breathe under the water, sea. But that's, yeah. 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 You're going to the Temple yeah. of Pyre and it, mm-hmm. uh, it's got its own, like I say, its own logic. It works, yeah. but only for the extent of that adventure. I think as well what, what Rogue Mistress does is, and again, it'd be interesting to compare it to other adventures that have been written, not just for Stormbrink, but other adventures that were around at the time or, or had come before it. I suppose what it does, it takes you on a kind of guided tour of more cocky and craziness, doesn't it? So yeah. it, it easily says it's linear, but what it's doing, I suppose, is taking you on this journey of you're going to encounter these things. You've got some agency value, you deal with them, but you're going to encounter these things because it's like a guided tour. It's like a kind of cruise around the, 
yeah. <laughs> around more, sort of more cocky and concepts, isn't it? That's what they're doing. So I don't know how groundbreaking it would have been at the time in its craziness. Maybe, maybe it is quite groundbreaking. You know, it doesn't feel like it now, but sometimes I get that feeling when I'm playing it that what this, what these people are doing, have written the adventure is, is kind of showing you this stuff, you know, and because certainly we, when we played Stormbringer, I ran a bit of it, I think. You might have run a bit of it as well. We, we didn't play it in those kind of settings, did we? No. You know, we, we played it a bit more grounded. It's stuck in the Young Kingdoms. You were going to. It was just like a fantasy sword sword and sorcery. Yeah, you were going to a Pantangian sorcerer's tower and doing this, that, and the other. Uh, That's how we played it. Whereas this, the Young Kingdoms have been left way behind, haven't they? Yeah. The Young Kings don't really, you're from the Young Kingdoms. It just, you don't feat, they don't really feature in it up, up to now at least. Don't really feature in it, do they? Before you know it, you're whisked away and you're, you're having adventures in different universes and different alternate realities. And we never played Stormbringer like that. You no, know, maybe, I wonder, maybe we should have done, you know. Maybe. I wonder whether coming back and, uh, coming back to playing and a few years ago, we played an awful lot of Numenera, didn't we? Mm. And I wonder whether that, as a concept and as a way of playing, opened up our minds to playing in yeah, worlds yeah, like that. Yeah, possibly, yeah. 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 Yeah, because we never, I was thinking about that the other day, I thought we never really played Stormbringer like this. So if this is like a showcase of how you play Stormbringer, well, that's kind of quite interesting because we yeah. didn't play it like that. It is perhaps an eternal quest for us to find a more cocky in game. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we're alone because I know that uh, Black Sword Hack, which mm, is yeah. Black Hack adapted for more yeah. cocky in games. Um, I need to explore that because that's got a doom dice. But maybe we'll never find it. Maybe we're still, it'll be like an eternal thing. Yeah. Like finding good chase rules. But he's quite... I think he's he's a bit cold on the idea of role playing games, isn't he? You know. Yeah. So what's interesting about the uh, the DCC Lankmar uh, box set, and I, I don't know who this is, but like Fritz Lieber was quite keen on yeah these things. Well, yeah, he hung around with uh, yeah. So so yeah. it's like it, you can and you can see in the adventures that connection that. I mean, obviously he's dead. dead he didn't have any. He didn't have any input into the DCC Lankmar thing, but you can see that maybe that enthusiasm from him has somehow fed into it. Yeah. Because I don't think Moorcock's enthusiastic about it all, is he, you know? Having spoken to him now, I think it's because it's not any, it's not just something he understands, understands the world of comics, yeah. understands yeah. the world of publishing, yeah. understands the world of yeah. uh, literary writing, uh, science fiction conventions, mm-hmm. not necessarily the world of gaming, because it is its own little... Yeah, it's its own little thing, that's fair enough, but it makes you wonder, it's a bit be interesting if someone tried to come up with something now because because that's fair said I mean, you know it's the black the black sword thing is is relatively new isn't it that's a new kind of game but all the games we're talking about are relatively old aren't they you know? yeah so it'd be really interesting if somebody came up with a more modern take on it like dcc or ksc or someone's right we're gonna we're gonna revamp all this and 
not not just reprint it or anything like that, just completely rehash it and come up with some kind of eternal champion role-playing game that's modern and draws on lots of modern gaming influences and modern gaming concepts, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. That would be very interesting. Well, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see what comes out of the uh, French Mornblade uh, project that's uh, currently being developed. And, of course, BRP, you know, when uh, Jason Durrell was on, mm-hmm. the gold book started off as a, an eternal champion or a multiverse yeah. approach to BRP. So I think it will continue to inspire and yeah. uh, develop. But we need to go now. Mm-hmm. You know why? Why? That pigeon over there is annoying me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> giving you funny love. I don't pigeon. like it. I don't like, I don't like <laughs> what he's doing to that other pigeon. And I don't like the way that it's looking at us as we're talking. See you, Blighty. See ya. There isn't another bit. Thanks to Mike for the interview and to Linda for making it possible. Really, it was like a dream come true for me. I hope you enjoyed it. You can hear me on Breakfast in the Ruins podcast talking in more depth about Letters from Hollywood with Andy Stimpson. There's a link in the show notes. I played Elric exclamation mark and Stormbringer RPG a lot this year and it was made possible thanks to the generous donation of books from the series from Peter W, a.k.a. Random Number on Discord. They're in the great library of RPGs but it has been fun getting them off the shelf and playing with them. Some of the supplements, such as the Atlas of the Young Kingdoms, are really well written and very inspiring. Thanks to Peter and thanks to Doc Cowie for rescuing the Elric exclamation mark GM screen from the vaults of Chaosium. Thanks to all the patrons who continue to make this podcast possible and please pass on the episode to anyone you think would enjoy it. Hopefully, this will have given you something to think about. Maybe our desire to create many worlds and many characters in gaming is a response to the expanding universe and our fear of death. While you're thinking about that, I'm going to finish this one with a volcano. Pass me the brand tub. Until next time, adios amigos.